0: Welcome to World War I Centennial News, episode number 72. It's about World War I then, what was happening a hundred years ago this week, and it's about World War I now news and updates about the centennial and the commemoration. This week, Mike Schuster from the Great War Project blog tells us about the ongoing German aggression, the Allies' desperation, and Pershing's plan to provide certain troops to be commanded directly by the Allied forces. Dr. Edward Lengel with a story about American troops that land in the U.K. Todd Woofenden introduces us to the U.S. Navy's submarine chasers. Raul Loughberry III tells us about a recent event in Connecticut commemorating his great-uncle, Raoul Lufberry. Peter Aladeff and Patrick Gregory join us from the World War I website, Centenary News. Catherine Akey with the commemoration of World War I in social media. All on World War One Centennial News, a weekly podcast brought to you by the U.S. World War One Centennial Commission, the Pritzker Military Museum and Library, and the Star Foundation. I'm Theo Mayer, the chief technologist for the commission, and your host. Welcome to the show. The United States Constitutional Bill of Rights was passed and adopted on December 15, way back in 1791. This includes the First Amendment, which reads, Congress shall make no law respecting an establishment of religion, or prohibiting the free exercise thereof, or abridging the freedom of speech, or of the press, or of the right of the people to peaceably assemble and to petition the government for a redress of grievances. 126 years later, in 1917, under the pressures of entering World War I, this constitutional right of the American people came under attack in profound ways. It began in June of 1917 with the passage of the Espionage Act, prohibiting any American from saying or doing anything to undermine the war effort, with the threat of a 20-year sentence in prison, or a $10,000 fine, or both. Four months later, in October of 1917, Congress followed up with the Trading with the Enemy Act, which empowered the government to confiscate the property of any person who engages in trade or any other form of financial transaction with an enemy nation during wartime. Overall, about $500 million worth of property was seized by the federal government in World War I from German immigrants and companies with ties to enemy nations, an amount equal to the entire federal budget before the war. But the most onerous attack on the First Amendment was coming. Now with that as a background, let's jump into our centennial time machine and roll back 100 years ago this week to learn more about the new Sedition Act. Dateline, May 21, 1918. A tiny, obscure, four-line article appears in the New York Times with the headline, President Signs Sedition Bill. Now the entire article reads, President Wilson today signed the sedition bill, giving the government wide powers to punish disloyal acts and utterances. (laughs) Let me read that to you again. Giving the government wide powers to punish disloyal acts and utterances. utterances. (laughs) utterances. <laughs> that sounds downright unconstitutional. And if I'd said that in May of 1918, I could have been prosecuted and fined $10,000, the equivalent of $180,000 today, and imprisoned for up to 30 years. Though President Wilson and Congress regarded the Sedition Act as crucial in order to stifle the spread of dissent within the country in a time of war. Modern legal scholars consider the act as contrary to the letter and the spirit of the U.S. Constitution, namely to the First Amendment of the Bill of Rights. A part of the act also allowed the postmaster general to refuse to deliver mail that met those same standards for punishable speech or opinion, effectively blocking the mail dissemination of dissenting newspapers, pamphlets, and flyers. The Sedition Act was directly applied to trying to control the socialist-leaning organized labor movement, and one of the most famous prosecutions under the Sedition Act during World War I was that of Eugene V. Debs, a pacifist labor organizer and founder of the International Workers of the World, the IWW. Now, he'd run for president in 1900 as a Social Democrat and in 1904, 1908, and 1912 on the Socialist Party of America ticket. After delivering an anti-war speech in June of 1918 in Canton, Ohio, Debs was arrested, tried, and sentenced to 10 years in prison under the Sedition Act. Now, Debs appealed the decision, and the case eventually reached the U.S. Supreme Court in January of 1919. In March of 1919, 101 years ago this month, the court ruled Debs had acted with the intention of obstructing the war effort and upheld his conviction. In the decision, Chief Justice Oliver Wendell Holmes referred to an earlier landmark case of Schenck versus the United States when Charles Schenck, also a socialist, had been found guilty under the Espionage Act after distributing a flyer urging recently drafted men to oppose the U.S. conscription policy. In his decision, Holmes maintained that freedom of speech and press could be constrained in certain instances, and that the question in every case is whether the words used are used in such circumstances and are of such a nature as to create a clear and present danger which will bring about substantive evils that Congress has a right to prevent. Eugene Debs' sentence was commuted a few years later in 1921 when the Sedition Act was repealed by Congress. Interestingly, major portions of the Espionage Act remain intact in United States law to this present day although the crime of sedition was largely eliminated by a famous libel case in 1964, which determined that the press's criticism of public officials was protected speech under the First Amendment, unless a plaintiff could prove that the statements were made maliciously or with reckless disregard for the truth. Your right to free speech, a very precious right, and one that was effectively legislated against a 100 years ago this week, in the war that changed the world. We have links in the podcast notes to a whole bunch of articles from the New York Times where the espionage, trading with the enemy, and sedition acts were applied. It's time for Mike Schuster, former NPR correspondent and curator for the Great War Project blog. Mike, your post points out that the Germans are far from out of the fight and that the Allied troops are very near collapse, while Pershing, Standing fast on his determination not to put American troops under British and French commands turns out not to apply that to all troops equally. You point to a palpable Allied desperation, and it seems like on the Western Front right now. It's truly darkest before the coming dawn.
1: True, Teo. And so our headline reads, another German attack on the Western Front. Overwhelming offensive breaks the Allied lines. Desperate need for reinforcements send black Americans to the battlefield. This is special to the Great War Project. The German high command has not given up hope of breaking the Allied line on the Western Front. So reports historian Martin Gilbert that in May a century ago, they try again, hoping even to reach Paris. 4,000 guns opened fire in the very early hours of May 27th, writes Gilbert. The third battle of the Aisne had begun. The French quickly lose four divisions of soldiers as the attacking German army drives through the French line to a depth of 12 miles. The firepower thrown against the French is overwhelming. The guns continue to fire, according to one account, and resistance did not cease until every man was killed or captured. Total Allied losses continue to mount, with the British army losing some 280,000 dead or wounded, the French up to 70,000 casualties. There was a desperate need for reinforcements to stave off complete collapse along the British line, reports historian Gary Meade, and some of the American units were ordered into the fray. Adds Meade, the Allies should have been better prepared for this offensive than they were. After all, they had good intelligence as to what the Germans were planning. Even Pershing had been informed. British Command General Douglas Haig declares that the British have their backs to the wall fighting for survival along a battlefront of 150 miles. All of this German action in the late spring of 1918 put into sharp focus the need on the Allied side to get more Americans into the fight, writes historian Meade, it once more brought to the fore the Allied demand to be able to control through amalgamation the deployment of the doughboys. In May, a century ago, Pershing insists, the morale of our soldiers depends on their fighting under our own flag. In their efforts to get hold of American troops, reports historian Meade, British and French military and political leaders did their utmost to ignore, belittle, and undermine Pershing. They even sometimes simply behaved as though he was not there. One unpleasant wrinkle to Pershing's posture stands out, writes historian Meade. Pershing may have stood his ground when it came to control of the white doughboys under his command, but he showed less concern for the Black regiments entrusted to him. He offered the Black American 92nd Division to Haig. I am informed, Pershing declares to Haig, that the 92nd Division is in a good state of training in the United States, and I have no reason to believe that its employment under your command would be accompanied by any unusual difficulties. I hope that the inclusion of the 92nd Division among the American troops to be placed under your command is acceptable to you and that you will be able to overcome any objections raised by your war office. There were some generals among the British ranks that held prejudices similar to those on the American side, but the British understood just how dire their position was on the battlefield. And that's news from the Great War Project 100 years ago this week.
0: Mike Schuster, curator for the Great War Project blog. The link to the blog and the post are in the podcast notes. Now for America Emerges, military stories from World War I with Dr. Edward Langle. Now, not all troops landed in France. Many of them arrive over there in England, including a yet unknown hero-to-be, as you'll hear from Ed's story.
2: 100 years ago this week, Private Alvin C. York of the 82nd All-American Division arrived in Liverpool in England. There were no fanfares announcing his arrival because he wasn't a hero yet, but he was one of thousands of draftee doughboys who were eager to win the war so they could return home to their families. York's first experience of life in war-weary Great Britain made clear the scale of the horror that had engulfed Europe over the past four years. A grim task lay ahead. Great Britain had entered World War I in 1914, Since then, horrendous battles such as the Somme and Passchendaele had inflicted millions of casualties on British, Irish, and Dominion troops, casting many families into mourning. Germany's submarine campaign against British and Allied shipping and the demands of feeding millions of soldiers on the continent reduced civilians to near-starvation diets. Nor were British non-combatants safe from harm. Three days after York and his comrades stepped onto the docks at Liverpool, a German bombing raid on London killed almost 50 men, women, and children, and wounded nearly 200 more. York, who was a humble farmer from Fentress County, Tennessee, sought no praise. He had found his peace with God, and he just wanted to do his job. Still, many of his buddies were disappointed by the apparent apathy of British soldiers and civilians. When the SS Scandinavian, carrying York's 328th Regiment, disgorged its cargo of eager doughboys on May 16th, Hardly anybody seemed to notice. Dockside, some well-meaning British civilians gave the Americans fish sandwiches and weak tea. Some doughboys quietly poured the tea into the harbor, hoping they'd receive better stuff later, and they didn't. The doughboys kept their eyes open for British women, only to discover that many of them wore black to mourn loved ones. Private York enjoyed hiking and riding trains across the tidy English countryside over the following days, but was disappointed by London's griminess and somber mood. Terribly homesick, he could only think about his family and the beauty of East Tennessee. He probably daydreamed about black-eyed peas, ham, and apple turnovers, too. The All-American Division's 325th Regiment was treated to a review, inspection, and salute from the King and Queen of Great Britain during his trip through London, but not York or the rest of the All-Americans. For them, the atmosphere was all business, as they arrived at Dover and prepared to join ferries that would take them to France not realizing that a short distance away, their comrades were about to enter full-scale combat for the first
0: time. Dr. Edward Lengel is an American military historian, author, and our segment host for America Emerges, military stories from World War I. There are links in the podcast notes to Ed's post and his website as an author. From the Great War channel on YouTube, videos about World War I 100 years ago this week, and from a more European perspective. New episodes this week include The Erste Ende Raid and The Peace of Bucharest. Another episode is Marie Curie in World War I and Who Killed the Red Baron. Finally, Evolution of French Infantry during World War I. See their videos by searching for The Great War on YouTube or by following the link in the podcast notes. That's the news from 100 years ago this week. Now it's time to fast-forward into the present with World War I Centennial News Now. As you know, this part of the podcast focuses on now and how we're commemorating the centennial of World War I. This week in Commission News... The National Memorial Day Parade in Washington, D.C. is coming up on Monday, May 28th. The parade will be huge, including marching bands, flags, celebrities, veterans of all ages, 300,000 cheering visitors, and TV cameras that will broadcast the parade across the country. This year, the parade will feature a special tribute to the American veterans of World War I, including several World War I-era military vehicles and for the first time ever, a parade float to emphasize the centennial of World War I and America's National World War I Memorial, which the Commission is building in Washington, D.C. Commission volunteers will be walking the parade and giving out free packets of poppy seeds as a symbol of remembrance and sacrifice for those who served in World War I. This parade is our nation's largest Memorial Day event, drawing hundreds of thousands of spectators to the National Mall to pay tribute to those who serve and have served. Read more about the 2018 National Memorial Day Parade at the link in the podcast notes.
3: Air-scope, get ahead! all hands to quarters. A torpedo captain on the starboard bow! take a zigzag course, full speed ahead. Aye, aye, sir. Right, right, right. Right over there. Right, 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 right. ah, he missed it by 20 feet. When you get the range, fire. Aye, aye, sir.
4: A little short. Try again. Fire, yes.
3: You've both gone under. We must appear. He's coming up, a Fire. Fire. He direct hit is to pieces! Hey, 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 hey. Where's the man that fired that shot? Here I be, Captain. I'm the fella, Hickey Hank from Old Yap Hank. Good Go boy! Good yes, boy! All right. We're, We're on our, our way, way across the foam. To fight for those we left at home, sweet home Are we downhearted? No, no, no We're doggone glad that we can go A jolly bunch of cars are we We love to sail the deep blue sea And sing so merrily A
0: sailor's life is so full of joy And all the journeys
3: of sailor boys That's why, the reason why We love to sail the deep blue
0: That was a 1918 radio-style dramatization from a submarine attack on a U.S. ship from a cylinder recording that we found. For a more contemporary take, and for this week's Spotlight on the Media, we're going to learn more about the U.S. submarine chasers of World War I. Joining us is Todd A. Wuffenden, editor of the Subchaser Archive website and the author of the book. Hunters of the Steel Sharks, the Submarine Chasers of World War I. That's a great book title, Todd. Welcome to the podcast.
4: Thanks, Teo. Glad to be here.
0: So Todd, the submarine warfare conducted by the Germans pushed America over the brink into the war. And once we joined the war officially, how did the U.S. respond to the continuing submarine threat?
4: Well, a major piece was the convoy system where instead of traveling alone, passenger ships and cargo ships traveled in a convoy with warships so that they could protect them from the potential of being sunk by submarines. But the US Navy also wanted to engage in an offensive campaign against the u boats And so the submarine chaser fleet was planned and built as part of this effort to go on the offensive and hunt and attack submarines.
0: The fleet that set out to chase the submarines was pretty unique. Why did we pick small wooden vessels to do the job?
4: Uh, There were lots of different ideas about what was needed, but one thing everyone agreed on was speed and maneuverability. If you're going to hunt submarines, you want small boats that can get underway quickly and make a pursuit. So that accounts for the size of the chasers, which were the smallest commissioned vessels in the U.S. Navy at only 110 feet long. They were basically long, sleek, wooden motorboats. Now, using wood was mainly a matter of necessity. Steel was in short supply, but boatyards all across the country had access to wood. And so in a very short time, a wartime fleet of over 300 wooden submarine chasers was built. And in 1918, they were traveling overseas to serve on the barrage lines in Europe.
0: Now, we did an article about the commander of the German Navy who claimed that all this didn't work. Was he wrong?
4: I would say that he was wrong. This kind of skips ahead to the end of the war and the consideration of what the contribution of the submarine chasers might have been, which I would say was hampering the progress of the U-boats. There were no officially credited kills of submarines by U.S. submarine chasers in World War I, but when the sub-chasers and other anti-submarine war vessels entered the arena of war and joined the barrage line, there was a noticeable drop in the actual kills of shipping. So essentially their effect was in cutting down on the number of days that U-boats had at sea and thereby cutting down on their opportunity to sink ships.
0: Well, deterrence is a completely legitimate tactic, <laughs> it is. You know, so, so World War I was all about tech. Was there any tech on the side of chasing the attacking the submarines?
4: Keep in mind that anti-submarine warfare was brand new. So yes, there was technology, but the technology was essentially being invented as they went along. And it was pretty rudimentary. Essentially, the crews had hydrophone listening devices, which they called the tubes. And they really were more or less just set of metal tubes with rubber bulbs at the ends connected to a device kind of like a stethoscope for listening. So you would have listeners below decks on the chasers, they put down the tubes through the hull of the boat and try to detect both the sound and the direction of U-boats. If they detected one, the unit leader, they had units of three chasers. The unit leader would take the bearings from each of the three boats in his unit, and he would figure out the estimated location and distance of the sub. Then the sub-chasers would race forward and drop a pattern of depth charges. And these depth charges were basically steel cans filled with 300 pounds of TNT. And a detonating device. They had stern racks on the chasers and they had a Y gun amidships that allowed them to launch depth charges over the sides of the boat. And that was pretty much it. They also have depth guns, but really the main weapon against submarines was depth charges.
0: Let me ask you something about your website, the Subchaser Archives. How did that come about? What is it?
4: It is just what it sounds like. It's a very large archive of stories and photos and documents and information about World War I subchasers. My entree into this area was that my great uncle, Lieutenant George Stuart Dole, was a commander of subchaser SC-93, and he left behind a vast collection of everything from tactical documents to photos to orders Um, An awful lot of things he probably shouldn't have kept, he did keep, and that passed down to me. And when I looked at this collection, I said, wow, here's an untold story and some really fascinating documents. So I started the Subchaser archives website as a way to put some of this information out for people, but also it has really grown into a site with lots of contributions from other people all over the world. Hundreds of people have sent photo collections and documents and letters and things. So it has become kind of a worldwide archive on a very narrow but interesting little slice of history.
0: Well, Todd, thank you so much for joining us.
4: Thank you. My pleasure, Teo.
0: Todd A. Woofenden is the editor of the Subchaser Archive website and the author of the book Hunters of the Steel Sharks, the Submarine Chasers of World War I. We have links in the podcast notes for how to learn more and how to get Todd's book. For events, this week we want to feature a commemoration event that took place recently in Wallingford, Connecticut. The event honored the centennial of the combat death of French-American pilot Raoul Loughberry, the eighth pilot to join the Lafayette Escadrille. Loughberry went on to command the 94th Aero Squadron when the Escadrille was disbanded in 1918. Loughberry was an ace three times over. He was killed in an aerial dogfight over Marron, France, a hundred years ago this week on May 19, 1918. Here to tell us more about his life and the commemoration in Connecticut is his great-nephew, Raoul Loughberry III. Raoul, welcome to the podcast.
5: It's very nice to be here. Thank you for having me, Cale.
0: Raoul, what a wonderful namesake you carry. I mean, Raoul Loughberry was a really colorful character, and could you tell us a little bit about your great-uncle?
5: Major Loughberry was actually born in France in 1885 to a French mother and an American father, Edward Lufbery, who had very close ties to Wallingford. Unfortunately, Anne passed away 26 years of age when Raoul was about 15 months old. After a few years, Edward remarried and decided to leave Raoul along with his two older brothers, my grandfather, Charles, and the oldest brother, Julian, with their French grandparents. And Raoul left school at 12 years of age to begin working odd jobs. At about 15 years of age, Major Lufbery got the traveling bug. He became a globetrotter. He decided in 1906 to come to Wallingford, Connecticut, where his father was living with his second family and his brother Charles, my grandfather, also residing. Both were doing well with their businesses and career opportunities. Raoul loved Wallingford, that's the place he wanted to settle down. After about two years, about 1908, Raul decided to move on with his gold prodding adventures and went back and visited uh, numerous countries in Europe, Asia, and Africa. He had 30 different jobs that ranged from baker, soldier, waiter, longshoreman, railway worker, brewmaster, laborer, construction worker, shipmate, Aircraft mechanic, a hospital aide, iron basket manufacturer, peddler, race car driver, a factory worker, an aviation ground crew worker, a customs agent, a tiger hunter expedition assistant, a railroad ticket collector, and a carnival merry-go-round worker. So he would do anything. He met up with a famous exhibition pilot at that time known as Mark Pope. He was also a Frenchman. Mark and he hit it off. Mark was looking for a mechanic. Raoul had some mechanical abilities, and they toured all of Asia and parts of North Africa doing exhibition flying. This would be 1912, 1913, in numerous countries, showing the first airplane to many of the citizens of those countries and what flight was all about. The war broke out in August of 1914. And at that time, Mark enlisted in the French Air Service and began flying. Raoul, being an American, basically joined the French Foreign Legion and within a few months also joined the French Air Service. In December of nineteen fourteen, Mark Pope was killed in a flying accident, flying for the French Air Service. Raoul basically at this time was not a pilot. He was doing a lot of mechanical work and ground crew service work and decided because his very best friend, Mark Pope, was killed that he would become a pilot and he began flying bombers and soon after moved on to fighter aircraft to revenge his good friend's death. As they say, he quickly picked up the skills, developed many tactics, and began shooting down German aircraft. He became the first American ace October 12th, 1916, by shooting down his fifth enemy aircraft. He then became a mentor, a leader for the Lafayette Escadrille, and became a Triple Ace in December of 1917. The Americans entered the war in 1918 of that January, and the Lafayette Escadrille basically was incorporated into the United States Air Service, The U.S. 94th Aero Pursuit Squadron is the unit that Major Loughberry joined and worked with for a number of months. Major Loughberry was killed in an aerial dogfight in May 1918. As you've already noted, sad day for all of us.
0: You've been working on compiling and editing a couple of photo albums about your great-uncle. Can you tell us about that?
5: Yes. uh, Over the last couple of years, because I wanted to make sure... Major Luffberry's Life was documented and would be here for future generations. I've gone ahead and put two Loughberry photo albums with narrative together, the first being about his great military career. The second book are his personal life stories, his childhood, his adventures, and many of the documents. That were written by or about him from about 1915 to 1928. And included in that are letters, though there weren't many, there were about seven that were written by him or by his fellow pilots within his squadron about daily lives flying those early biplanes over the Western Front.
0: Well, Raul, thank you for coming in and sharing the story of your great uncle with us. He's quite an adventurer.
5: He very much was, and we considered him to be our family's hero and just an outstanding and remarkable pioneer military pilot that did amazing things back in World War I.
0: Raul Loughberry III is the great-nephew of World War I ace and Lafayette Escadrille member Major Raul Loughberry. Learn more about the recent commemoration of his life and about his service in the war by following the links in the podcast notes this week in our international report we're going back across the pond as we're joined by the creators of a wonderful website called centenary news it's a super centralized resource for all things world war one filled with news articles event listings book reviews and more joining us to tell us more are peter aladeff the editor for centenary news and patrick gregory former bbc news editor Contributor to Centenary News and co editor and author of the book, An American on the Western Front. Gentlemen, thank you so much for joining us.
3: Cheers, guys. It's a pleasure to be here.
0: So, let me start by saying that your website's really wonderful. It's very, very broad in perspective and a great resource, especially for our listeners. Starting with you, Peter, how did Centenary News start and who's behind it?
6: Centenary News was founded by Nigel Dacre, who is a former editor of ITV News. That's the independent television commercial news channel here in the UK. And he got in early and he had it up and running in November 2011. So the site would be well-placed to cover the build-up to the First World War Centenary or Centennial, as you say. And his aim then and now was to provide independent and impartial coverage of centenary events and also to keep the reporting as international as possible so that we not for example just focused at all on the uk but i think we achieve a pretty broad geographical spread like nigel dacre my background is journalistic and i spent the best part of 30 years producing news bulletins for bbc radio here in london The approach to the centenary is essentially, as a journalist, I wouldn't pretend to be a historian. We cover events commemorating the Great War as they have unfolded throughout 2014-18 and in the remaining months of this year. So it's not a work of history as such, but we do have to provide the context. And it's also important to stress that the entire operation has rested on voluntary contributors. And I'd really like to thank all those who have taken the time and trouble to write features and other material for
0: us. Well, as a kindred public history project, and with World War I being so epic and vast in scope, how do you guys manage your editorial calendar and choices for what you publish and what you don't?
6: That is a very, very good question. Sometimes I look at the calendar of events and think this is going to be really quite a daunting proposition. I've reflected on this quite a lot recently when people ask what we are aiming to do and I think it is essentially to produce a snapshot or at the very least a flavor of what goes on so that if you were to look back on this site in you know five, ten years time you would see the kind of events that people were covering in the many different subject areas
0: well, Patrick, you're interested, in, and your expertise is focused on the American experience of the war. How did you get to come to that topic?
3: Well, I mean, it's interesting. Peter and I, old colleagues from BBC, when I left the BBC, where I was a news editor about five, six years ago, I wanted to devote my time fully to history. When I left, devoting myself then to World War I study, and research. Um, within that, I focused on co-editing and authoring a book you mentioned, An American Western Front, which took years of research and writing, but then that itself then pushed me into writing more fully and researching more fully all of the various aspects of the American war.
0: Has there been a tendency to neglect or downplay America's role in World War I from a European point of view?
3: Uh, Yes, there has been a tendency from the Europeans to downplay it or to just accidentally overlook it. What I find ever more curious is in the United States, I find that not only is it slightly downplayed on this side of the pond, it has been at a public level, I think, a sadly neglected war.
0: I don't think it's neglected. I just think it's forgotten. (laughs) So I agree with you. (laughs) Peter, what have been your most popular articles and stories? From a reader standpoint, what are the ones that have got the most readership?
6: Most of the evidence, I would say, is anecdotal. So it's sometimes judged by the social media responses or whatever. But our our biggest ever Twitter response was actually related to ceremonies in Scotland honoring a pioneering doctor, Elsie Inglis who founded a group called the Scottish Women's Hospital Movement to help the troops, notably in places like Serbia. She went to the British War Office and offered her medical services. They responded with, my good lady, go home and sit still. Her offer of frontline medical help was then immediately accepted by France and other allied countries. With the sort of build up to, you know, women being granted the vote for the first time in Britain in 1918, I think that obviously struck a chord with people because we really did get a massive response
3: on that one. In general, I think we found there's been a good pickup both on the website and social media on the American stuff, be it, you know, most recently on Saban's sculpture or it may be on the Tuscania going down. It might be Seshprey. It may be, you know, Cantigny coming up, that kind of thing. But that at least is heartening.
0: Here's a question we just got in from our live audience. Where do most of your readers come from?
6: Yeah, I've got the figures here, actually. 41% come from the UK. The next biggest is actually the United States. So that's a quarter of our readership. And then third is Australia, which is about 6% of the readership, then followed by Canada, France, Germany, Belgium, New Zealand, Ireland, and India.
0: I really want to encourage our listeners to stop by your site at www.centenarynews.com. If you listen to this podcast, you're going to love this site. And gentlemen, thank you so much for joining us today. Cheers to you. Peter Oladeff is the editor for the Centenary News website. Patrick Gregory is a former BBC News editor and contributor to Centenary News. Visit the site at www.centenarynews.com or by following the links in the podcast notes. Welcome to our weekly feature, Speaking World War One, where we explore the words and phrases that are rooted in the war. If you can face chaos, uncertainty, and drama without succumbing to panic and anxiety, you might be described as unflappable marked by assurance and self-control. Though unflappable doesn't enter the English lexicon until the 1950s, it is derived from a World War I-era phrase, to be in a flap. Usually defined as to be worried, the phrase to be in a flap has its origins in the Royal Navy around 1916, taken from the frantic flapping birds would perform as they attempted to fly. The phrase spread among the ground troops as well, and there's a lot to be in a flap about during the war. Constant artillery barrages, snipers taking shots around the clock, poor food and living conditions. The phrase probably got a lot of use in the trenches. To be in a flap and unflappable this week's phrases for speaking World War I. There are links for you in the podcast notes. For articles and posts, here are some of the highlights from our weekly dispatch newsletter. Headline, Lost and Found World War I Medal Returned to Veterans Family in New Jersey. This is an update about our story of a recently found World War I medal in New Jersey. Its original owner family has been found and the medal has been returned. Headline, Maryland World War I Chapel Keeping Faith in Troubled Times read about a local community commemorative event in Odenton, Maryland. On June 3, 2018, the public is invited to an outdoor concert and dedication of a World War I centennial monument at Epiphany Chapel and Church House in Odenton, Maryland. In 1918, the chapel was the home away from home for soldiers and included, quote, reinforcements to the chaplains of the colored regiments, unquote. Headline, Annual In Flanders Field Memorial Commemorative Event in New York City. For a major metro event, read about the upcoming commemoration in New York City. General Delegate of the Government of Flanders to the United States will be hosting the annual In Flanders Field Memorial Event on May 24th, 10 a.m., featuring the East Coast Doughboy Honor Guard. Headline, Harriet Louise Carfrey our featured story of service. Read about Harriet Louise Carfrey, a nurse who served in World War I with the Red Cross. Finally, our selection from our official online Centennial merchandise store. This week, it's our U.S. Army Doughboy Window Decal, an easy, inexpensive way to let the world know that it's the centennial of World War I. Featuring the iconic Doughboy silhouette flanked by barbed wires so prevalent during World War I, you can proudly display this pointed reminder of the sacrifices made by U.S. soldiers. And hey, it's only four bucks, a great add-on item when you're purchasing other merchandise. And those are some of the headlines this week from the Dispatch newsletter. Subscribe by going to one slash subscribe or follow the links in the podcast notes. And that brings us to the buzz. The Centennial of World War I This Week in Social Media with Catherine Akey. Catherine, what's your pick this week?
7: Hi, Teo. Last weekend was Mother's Day weekend, a holiday dear to doughboys in Europe 100 years ago, as much as it is to us today. This week, we shared an article from historian and World War I Centennial Commission historical advisor, Mitchell Yokelson published in the New York Times. The article entitled, Dear Mom, The War Is Going Great, surveys Mother's Day correspondences during wartime, from General Pershing down to the humblest of doughboys. The Army at the time promoted what it called Mother's Letters, joining in a campaign by the YMCA and Red Cross. Read the article at the link and the podcast notes. And last for the week, this week was the centennial of a harrowing incident that helped establish the reputation of the Harlem Hellfighters. On the night of May 15, 1918, Private Henry Johnson and Needham Roberts, members of the all-Black 369th Infantry Regiment, found themselves fighting for their lives against 20 German soldiers out in front of their unit's trench line. Johnson fired three rounds in his French-made rifle, tossed all his hand grenades, and then grabbed his army-issued bolo knife and started stabbing. Both survived the incident, and Johnson earned himself the nickname, the Black Death, for his ferocious stand. The question of whether the African-American unit would fight as well as any other was answered by his actions in the darkness of May 15th. Read more about the intense engagement and the Hellfighter's subsequent struggles upon returning to civilian life by following the link in the podcast notes.
0: And that wraps up this week in May for World War I Centennial News. Thank you for listening. We also want to thank our guests, Mike Schuster, curator for the Great War Project blog, Dr. Edward Langle, military historian and author, Todd Woofenden, editor of the Subchaser Archive website and author of the book Hunters of the Steel Sharks, the Submarine Chasers of World War I, Raoul Loughberry III, great nephew of the World War I ace, Major Raoul Loughberry. Peter Aladeff and Patrick Gregory joined us from the website Centenary News. Catherine Akey, World War I photography specialist and line producer for the podcast. Many thanks to Mac Nelson, our sound editor, and to Eric Marr for his great input and research assistance. A small retraction from last week. We mistakenly referred to the co-founder of the Boy Scouts of America as Ernest Thomas Seaton, rather than his real name, Ernest Thompson Seaton. And I'm neither Thomas nor Thompson. I'm Teo, Teo Mayer, your host. The U.S. World War I Centennial Commission was created by Congress to honor, commemorate, and educate about World War I. Our programs are to inspire a national conversation and awareness about World War I, including this podcast. We're bringing the lessons of a hundred years ago into today's classrooms. We're helping to restore World War 1 memorials in communities of all sizes around our country. And of course, we're building America's National World War 1 Memorial in Washington D.C. We want to thank the commission's founding sponsor, the Pritzker Military Museum and Library, as well as the Star Foundation for their support. The podcast can be found on our website at ww1cc.org/cn. That's Charlie and Nancy. Now, with our new interactive transcript features for students, teachers, and for sharing the content. Just a note to listeners, the transcript publishes about two days after the show. You can also access the World War One Centennial News Podcast on iTunes, Google Play, TuneIn, Podbean, Stitcher Radio on Demand, Spotify, using your smart speaker by saying play WW1 Centennial News Podcast, and now also available on YouTube. Just search for our WW1Centennial YouTube channel. Our Twitter and Instagram handles are both at WW1CC, and we're on Facebook at WW1Centennial. Thank you for joining us, and don't forget to share the stories that you're hearing here today about the war that changed the world.
3: Yes, but while it's more dangerous right here, there's danger everywhere on the sea. But don't worry, you red Cross girls would be the first to be taken care of. Oh, we're not worrying any more than the boys are. We're We're on our way across the foam to fight for those we left at home, sweet home. Are we downhearted? No, no, no. We're doggone glad that we can go.
5: Hey, that's a pretty good song, but I can sing a better one. Who are you? My name's
3: Picky Hank, and I used to sing soprani in our village choir. <laughs> <laughs> well, go ahead and show the boys up, Hank. Well, I'll be
5: darned if I don't.
3: I'm a Hickey Hank, he's Hickey Hickey Hank. I'm Hicky
5: Hank. Hank, I'm glad I left the farm to
3: be an A1 fighting man, I'll come back someday in a Captain's cap and I'll take my best cow on my left. lots of kisses, later misses, I'm a Hickey 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 Hank, fire Hicks. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Funny You're alright Hank, I'm
4: bigger. <laughs> so long.